Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program, and two new online master of arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. It is my pleasure to introduce our speaker this afternoon, Ambassador Rajendra Abhyankar. Ambassador Abhyankar is visiting professor at the College of Liberal Arts, Purdue University, Lafayette. From 2012 to 2019, he was Professor of Practice of Diplomacy and Public Affairs at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs, Indiana University. Ambassador Abiyankar was the Indian Foreign Service, was in the Indian Foreign Service from June 1968 and retired in August 2005. He was secretary in the Ministry of External Affairs from 2001 to 2004, retiring as ambassador to the EU, Belgium, and Luxembourg. He has been Indian ambassador to Cyprus, Syria, Turkey, Azerbaijan, and consul general in San Francisco. He has written seven books on Indian diplomacy and related issues. His latest book is Syria, the Tragedy of a Pivotal State. Ambassador Abiyankar, welcome and thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you very much. <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be talking to people even though it's remote. Um, let me start by saying that I was Indian ambassador in Damascus from 92 to 96. And uh, I've visited Damascus since then in 2011 and 2012, both at the invitation of the Syrian government. That was after the Arab revolutions had hit Syria. And I again visited in 2019 in order to complete the book that I have written. So I have a personal sort of relationship with a lot of people who are in power in Damascus and Syria. The issue is that with four of the five permanent members of the Security Council on the ground in Syria, only the Russians are supporting the Assad government. All others have been supporting smaller groups fighting for fighting the Syrian government. At its height, there were more than a thousand different little, little groups that were getting sustenance, not only from some of the permanent members, but also from a large number of regional powers like Saudi Arabia, Qatar especially, uh, and um, some others which were interested in seeing the back of Bashar al-Assad. It all stems, in my view, from the fact that Syria remains a country where the majority of the population is Sunni, Whereas it is run, run for the last 40 years, more than 40 years, by a sect of the Shias called the Alawites. Ever since Hafiz Assad took over the country in, 19, in the 70s, after it was plagued with military takeovers one after the other, almost every six months. So this was really the background in which Syria came to be an important and a pivotal country in the Middle East. Surprisingly, although it has access to the sea, Syria has always looked inwards, has always provided the means and the opportunity for different people, for different countries or to come and settle there 
corals on the ground what is today Syria. And during the last 10 years, since 2011, when the uh, Syrian civil war started, we have seen, as I mentioned, four of the five permanent members of the Security Council on the ground, with the result that the majority, that the most, sorry, the most important principles of the United Nations that were agreed at the San Francisco Charter, like non-intervention, preserving the sovereignty of any country, the right of self-defense, which is circumscribed by certain laws, certain principles, all these have been put to the, have been totally ignored. And that is why you found that the Security Council rarely took over the question of how do you lead to peace in Syria? Because with four of the five permanent Security Council members involved, there's no way that they could take it to the Security Council for a decision. It eventually happened only twice. Once when there was a they were determined, unanimous bid to get Syria to give up its chemical weapons, which it did on Russian regime. And second was when finally in 2015, the UN Security Council Resolution 2254 was passed unanimously, which lays down a blueprint of how to usher in and keep the peace in Syria. This is in short the issue that I hope to be able to speak about to, to understand, or I hope that it will help you understand why this is such a crucial um, country in the Middle East. Firstly, of course, Syria possesses a unique geography and is at the crossroads of major religions, empires, and economic and mercantile networks. Its enduring proclivity to engender and synthesize diverse, often contradictory streams of thought, civilization, religion, and politics have made it a battleground for opposing ideas, beliefs, and practices. It has, issue, it has awakened long-standing issues of sectarianism and communitarian accommodation in the region, questions that have been the trigger and the terrain for forces determined to upset or destroy the existing order. It has brought to the fore the question of inclusiveness in, of minorities in the context of multi-sectarianism and national unity. Of course, a word about the corona pandemic before I get on to more political subjects. But basically, the corona pandemic hit uh, Syria uh, in March on March 22, 2020. The numbers then were reported to be around 112,000, but under the way, the under the possibility, there is really very little possibility to actually check on a regular basis or test on a regular basis the spread of this virus. With 10 years of war, the hospital facilities are badly battered and doctors grossly inadequate and unavailable. The, the PPE suits, sanitizers, ventilators, nothing is really available. With economic loss of $200 million per day, currency reserves are under severe pressure. There is of course excessive corruption 
crisis in the crisis in Lebanon and the effect of the U.S. Caesar Act, which President Trump passed, have led to a tremendous shortage of any kind of assistance for Syria. The conditions outside the government control are even worse. Basically, Assad controls 75% of his population in about 90% of the territory. So Syria's humanitarian catastrophe has become considerably worse over the years. The Syrian civil war, now in its 10th year, in my view is a war with global implications since all participants, particularly four of the five permanent members of the Security Council, are on the ground. They have subordinated the cardinal principles enshrined in the UN Charter to their vested interests. In mimicking history, Syria has once again provided the battleground for opposing interests to settle their quarrels, Israel and Hezbollah, Iran and Israel, the United States and Iran, and the United States and Egypt. Another dimension of the civil war <clears throat> is the hybrid religious war that is taking place, both on ideology and on the ground between Iran and Saudi Arabia. In bringing all the major world and regional powers on a common battlefield, Syria has become the septic focus that has started the end of the international system that was established after the Second World War. Of course, the immediate impact of this long-standing civil war has been that 11 million people, 11 million Syrians, have been rendered homeless, which is half of the country's pre-war population, about 6 million within the country, and 5 million refugees, majority in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. I had interviewed the Syrian refugees in the Zakari camp in Jordan. And, all of, and they gave you very many different reasons why they left their country. Yet at the same time, they conveyed to me a unanimous, more or less unanimous view that they would like to return back to the country. They would like to see all the different powers enmeshed in the country to leave, and they would like to leave the Syrians, Syria for the Syrians. This long war has, since 2011, March 2011, when the thing started, has seen more than 465,000 Syrians, <clears throat> including 55,000 children killed in the fighting, over a million injured, and their succor, return, and rehabilitation to their homes will require an equally extraordinary international effort as much as it has taken to destroy the country. Because basically, Damascus is more or less secure, although a few days ago there was a bomb blast there too. But Aleppo, which is the second big city, is completely destroyed and also many others. Now, why does Syria matter? So Syria's pivotal role, pivotal nature stems from its enduring history and its incomparable contribution to human civilization in nurturing three great religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Its multiple dimensions have contributed to regional and international stability. In fact, what Syria has given to the world is its own heritage. It sits astride the civilizational confluence of four cultures, the Arab, 
Persian, Turkish, and Hebrew. Its population between 18 and 23 million is a mosaic of ethnically, culturally, and religiously distinct communities. The secular culture that it has bred makes it unique in the Middle East. Even though Islam remains in its different interpretations, the legacy of the people. The Syrian civil war is multidimensional, including sectarian strife and socioeconomic grievances. It's a class conflict between, wealthy, between the wealthy ruling elite and marginal communities, mostly confined within the Sunni Arab community. The Syrian government has found it expedient to incorporate to its side the non-Sunni ethno-sectarian groups such as the Christians, the Druze, the Alawites, and the Kurds, to assert that it would protect them from Islamists or terrorists. It has thus made religious belief the primary identity marker posing the dilemma that arises between maintaining sectarian diversity while preserving national unity. The country's archaeological historicity runs were unmatched. Rash Shamra or Ugarit, which is on the Latakia coast, has yielded evidence of uninterrupted civilization over, for over five millennia. Even more, the sites of these ancient places, even today, provide the nucleus of living spaces for the people. What I mean is that these are not just preserved. They are places where people live. Nothing illustrates this better than the street called Street, which you find referred to in the Old Testament, which is in Damascus. The street called Strait is still a living street. There are people who live there. There are shops on it. It's an amazing street. And even more so, the Umayyad Mosque, right in the center of old Damascus. It has been hallowed ground for over 2,000 years. For all the three religions, one after the other, and surprisingly, each of them have left discernible traces in its architecture, which you can even see now. Damascus has six world heritage sites and thousands of others spread out across the land. For this reason, the wanton destruction of these sites by the Islamic State at a certain time in this last 10 years, was intended to negate traces of human civilization and deny Syria's ancient historicity to the adherents of three major Western religions. It is equally remarkable that this religious interaction facilitated the growth of multiple sects through a melding of ideas from different faiths, faiths, faiths and their mystical strands. Modern Syria remains the melting pot of many unique sects like the Alawites, the Ismailis, and the Druze. How did it all start? There we have to talk about the Arab Spring, rather misnamed, I'd call, the, call it the Arab Revolutions. Syria was well-placed to stand against the whirlwind of Arab revolutions that in 2010 flowed out of Tunisia, engulfing Egypt and threatening Bahrain. Already the high hopes for a free and democratic Arab world had spawned civil wars in Libya, Yemen, and Iraq. Yet they led to rule 
by strong men and made the army eventually as the arbiter of people's fate. Even monarchies were forced to make concessions, and Tunisia, the cradle of the Arab Spring, remains its sole success. It also saw the assertion of power, of the power to intervene by absolute rulers of the Gulf Arab states, particularly Qatar, UAE, and Saudi Arabia. Bashar's resistance model <clears throat> in March 2011 was in keeping with the period of political confusion seen in the states afflicted by the Arab Spring. It was only by 2014 that the formalization of Syria's counter-revolution by its deep state took place. By then, Egypt had seen the assumption of power by Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, formerly general, the return of the old guard, Nida Tunes party in Tunisia, and the fragmentation of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Thus, the Syrian case became unique with Bashar Assad staying the course, overwhelming relentless opposition from numerous radical Islamic groups, all supported by foreign powers. Syria dispelled the intoxicating sense of an Arab public coming together to confront its despotic rulers, leaders, consolidating resistance by entrenched groups and interests. Nowhere is it better illustrated then by the effort of the Gulf states to avoid an Arab revolution seen from the Saudi action in Bahrain and that of other Gulf monarchies to fund opposition Sunni groups in the Syrian civil, civil war. That whole decade of the Arab revolutions was a barren decade. Yet it saw a demographic explosion, a continued ascendance of autocrats, the fall of tourism to that part of the world, and the absence of opportunities for gaining knowledge and jobs, reviving the Arab revolutions and jobs. So the whole idea of the Arab revolutions was never really ended. They revived again in 2019 in Algeria, Libya, and Sudan. Once again, there is no surety that it will bring about a democratic polity in these countries. Now, where, how did the Syrian civil war actually start? It started with the brutal reaction in March 12, March 11, sorry, in Dara. Dara being the city that is right on the Jordanian border. Earlier, it was known only for the fact that that was where the opposition to the Turks started. Um, Dara can be explained, <clears throat> the problem in Dara can be explained where children who had put graffiti on the walls stating that Asad, you are next. That is more or less the substance of what they have put on these walls. All these students and young people were hauled up by the security agencies and brutally treated. The brutal reaction can of course be explained by the existence of a network of security agencies part of the Syrian shadow state, each outbidding the other in an effort to show loyalty to the regime. Afghanistan's shadow state has ensured that governance institutions were subordinated to the security agencies. With their disunity and incompetence in holding terrain, the opposing Islamic groups on their part, were unable to shield the local population from regime forces, nor protect them from the misbehavior of their own fathers. 
The inability of the rebel groups to create effective alliances was a need to cowtow to the often antagonistic and variable priorities of their foreign sponsors. Through 10 years of civil war, the regime has asserted its sovereignty on distributing UN humanitarian assistance, placing itself in the controlling position vis-a-vis -vis the groups and areas where assistance was being sent. It created an institutional framework <clears throat> for international relief that ensured that such assistance was distributed at the regime's wish and not according to the UN's needs assessment. It established the regime's sovereignty internationally and staved off any possibility of an attack based on R2P responsibility to protect. In one sense, the Syrian civil war has given a new meaning to what are borderlands, because these borderlands have become the place where people have traded, where different groups have traded, have crossed, and have collected taxes. The Syrian civil war also, to some extent, the dissatisfaction of the Syrian people was also because there were environmental refugees. There was a great deal of alienation of the land and farming became the least popular work to do with the result that you had people entering the cities, particularly Damascus, because of lack of anything else to do. But another interesting fact is that the reason for the longevity of the war was also the regime's proclivity to tamp down or ramp up hostilities in particular areas and checkpoints to meet its economic needs. The business side of the civil war not only ensured survivability of the regime, but of the opposition groups as well. The regime was not above using variegated war tactics against different opposing groups, depending on the level of cooperation that they received. But in the end, Bashar Assad has survived this long-running civil war, contrary to what happened in the other places where the Arab revolutions hit. Mubarak left from um, Egypt, then in Tunisia, the dictator left, and you find found people leaving, but Bashar managed to survive. It, the reasons were for the problem. Apart from an efficient state structure and a non-politicized army that was bequeathed to him by his father after Ghazal, Bashar's ability to outplay regional and international enemies has been a surprise. His success owes greatly to the exploitation of ethnic and sectarian fault lines by supporting opposing stakeholders in Lebanon, Iraq, Turkey, and Palestine. You will see because of this that Syria has its tentacles in all these countries and continues to make a big difference in the way things happen in that part of the world. Bashar's ability to divide his opponents on the diplomatic table and the battlefield has been remarkable. Syria had 16 army coups since 1949 until Hafiz Assad's champion, Michel Afdal, who inspired the Arab who inspired what was called the Arab Path Socialism and provided the answer the people were seeking, or at least thought they were seeking. The Ba'ath Socialist political culture has emphasized homogeneity as a high virtue, making the state cardinal in politics, society, and public life. While it weakened the growth of liberalism 
It made the leader supreme in all decision making. Hafiz Asad created a system of divide and rule and personalized his power to the extent that he alone became the embodiment of the state. In asserting his staying power, the state made constructive use of the glory of the past, which was quite remarkable because it gave great prominence to the archeological sites in Syria and to the upkeep of the museums in Damascus, Aleppo, and Palmyra. The attempt was to portray modern Syria as the heir to the Pilag Asham, even though certain parts of that historic land were no longer under Syrian sovereignty. Syria's past was molded into an Arab, Islamic, and even more a pre-Islamic and pre-Arab past that made it the cradle of human civilization. It provided the historical ethos for the modern Syrian state. Hafez Assad's lifelong interest was power. And with ruthless determination and indefatigable negotiating ability, he was able to make his small country pivotal to the resolution of every challenge in the Middle East. He also orchestrated a smooth transfer of power to his second son, Bashar, after his early, older son, Basil, was killed in a car accident. And he managed to get the support of the Sunni um, major leaders in order to make this happen. Under Bashar, the Ba'ath Party has become a far-reaching instrument of state control of the economy, politics, and society. He had to adapt his foreign policy while maintaining the continuity of his father's policy. In spite of all the problems that Bashar has had, he has retained support from key elements of the Syrian society, the army and the intelligence services, and particularly the Alawites. Like the Alawites, other minorities and some middle and upper class Sunnis have continued to regard the Assad family as a bulwark of stability in the face of Islamic radicalism in the region. The Assad regime has survived for 40 years by a combination of guile posing up to powerful countries like Iran and Russia. I should go ahead and probably talk to you a little bit about the foreign interference that the Syrian civil war has seen in this last decade. Apart from the foreign countries actively involved are France, Iran, Qatar, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, United Kingdom, and the United States. Of these, only Russia and Iran are at the invitation of the Syrian government. All others are in contravention of the fundamental UN principle of non-interference and preservation of national sovereignty. Further, neither do these countries have a common goal in Syria, nor are they like-minded in the region's future. Among Syrian, Syria's allies are Iran, which sees Syria as its fulcrum for influence in the Arab world, especially after its close relations with the Iraqi government. Although Syria remains an avowedly secular regime, secular to the extent of what is permitted within the Quran. Um, and while Iran is a theocratic state, they have been allies since 1979, since the 1979 Iranian revolution. Since 2013, Iran's military intervention in Syria has grown manifold. It has allowed Bashar to survive the long civil war 
And like Bashar, Iran is also about the civil war as a fight against terrorism. By the way, this use of the fact that of the word terrorism has become a good out for those who want to fight certain groups opposed to them. Like Bashar, Iran is also about the civil war as a fight against terrorism. Iran's presence also meant that of the Lebanese Hezbollah who have joined the battle. In every sense, this is quid pro quo for Syrian assistance in providing a conduit for the flow of Iranian arms and munitions to the Hezbollah in Lebanon. Iran's goals are the preservation of this route and possibly establishing a permanent military presence on the Israeli border on the Golan. Building on the Iranian presence, Russia entered the civil war in 2015, emboldened by the slack, by the slack in the United States and Western presence. Its goals have been to shore up its long-standing ally in Syria, to project its regional role in the Middle East, and to divert attention from its forays in Crimea and Ukraine. Once again, in accepting opposing groups as terrorists, Putin drew a parallel to the situation in Chechnya. Russia's discomfort in the use by the United Nations Security Council of R2P in the Libyan case was reflected in its vetoes to ensure against a repetition in the Syrian case. In so doing, Syria, Russia sent a message of support to other countries going through the Arab revolutions. Russia's intervention altered the course of the civil war in Bashar al-Assad's favor, helped it to consolidate its only naval base on the Mediterranean at Tartus, and build an air base at Mine with sophisticated weaponry to deter U.S. prompt global strike, PGS capability. Russia has also taken steps to lend its weight to the Syrian president in raising international finance for rebuilding the country. As an initiator of the Astana process on peace building, Russia's presence has assured Bashar Assad helped to rein in Iran, break Turkey's pursuit of its Syrian goals vis-a-vis -vis the Kurdish group, the PKK, and control Israel's aerial forays into Syria. Russia has kept open channels to all powers involved in the Syrian conflict. Syria's regional foes include, of course, Turkey, which presently is sitting on Syrian land, hoping that it can create a sanitaire inside Syria on its border with Syria, um, with the aim, so-called, of resettling two million of the three million refugees in Turkey at the moment. This military action has been totally unwarranted and against any UN principle. Saudi Arabia's relations have fluctuated with Syria at the best of times. For the early years, going all the way up to almost 2019, the Saudi Arabia's only interest was to fund the groups opposing Bashar Assad, mainly because it was a sectarian conflict in their eyes. That, of course, has now changed, and Saudi Arabia has given up the idea of removing Bashar al-Assad. Qatar's involvement has also been quite considerable in the last 10 years, mainly because of Qatari Amir Hamad's desire to secure his legacy. Although once a close friend of the Assad family, Qatar responded to a political opportunity becoming a major source of external funding for radical Islamic groups. Yet it did not come on the fickle loyalties of these groups, defeating its the very purpose of it becoming, its presumed idea of becoming the kingmaker in civil war. This, of course, was a subsidiary cause for the other blockade that was placed on Qatar by Bahrain, Egypt, and 
Egypt, UAE, and Saudi Arabia, which ended only in January 2021, because of the accusation that they were doing this in order to hit at Saudi Arabia. The United States, working with Russia and the UN, the United States strategy and military presence in Syria has been pretty low ever since uh, President Barack Obama and Donald Trump. But neither president has the United States taken a leading role in giving the in giving a leading role. Given that uh, after two long wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I believe the government is not interested in getting enmeshed into one more continuing problem. Yet. On the use of chemical weapons, uh, unlike President Obama, President Trump executed two strikes against the Assad regime for using these weapons. President Biden is clear about withdrawing from the Middle East now, and one can see that this will be the end of um, any major U.S. involvement in the region if it works out. In general, the United States' main interest in Syria has been advanced, which is weakening of the ISIS and a reduction of the use of chemical weapons by Bashar al-Assad. The United States working with Russia and the UNSC PPI must address the issue of providing Syrians humanitarian assistance and funding to rebuild the destroyed country. UK and France have also been involved in this whole area, but eventually, both have agreed that they don't want to have that removing Bashar is not the primary aim. The basic aim is the establishment of an agreed political framework to end the Syrian civil war uh, in accordance with the Security Council Resolution 2254 of 2015. Each of the eight powers enmeshed in the Syrian civil war have pursued their own agenda or their own proxies, unmindful of the terrible tragedy faced by the Syrian people. This has resulted in the inability to secure even a lasting ceasefire. Now that Bashar Assad has won back most of his country, will they start the carnage again or work jointly to alleviate the suffering of the Syrian people and rebuild the country? This resolution 2254 of 2015 provides the blueprint. It lays down the principle for a settlement based on a close linkage between a ceasefire and a parallel political process, emphasizing a Syrian-led, Syrian-owned political transition. It calls for a credible, inclusive, and non-sectarian governance based on, new, on a new constitution and open and free elections. It suggests the need for confidence-building measures to re-establish trust and accountability ceasefire monitoring, and prevention of terrorist acts by ISIS and related groups. The need to create conditions for the safe return of the refugees and internally displaced by allowing a safe flow of humanitarian assistance throughout the country and cessation of attacks against hospitals and other public facilities. The negotiations which have been continued on UNSCR 2254 from 2012 have been long and tortuous. It has been pretty difficult, but eventually a lot has been achieved. The political process in Syria has, was pursued or has been pursued on multiple tracks, multiple contiguous coterminous tracks with long and increasingly, with the long and increasingly complex civil war. It starkly differs from similar processes in Afghanistan and Iraq, both marked by the absence of a unanimous Security Council resolution and by primacy of the United States. Another contrast is that Syria, in Syria, Bashar Assad still is in place, whereas in Iraq and Afghanistan, there have been multiple leaders dictated by tribal and religious linkages. The post-war scenario in Syria will require near simultaneous steps towards de-escalation, including ushering an enduring ceasefire, the return of the refugees, and the internally displaced 
rebuilding of hospitals and roads, schools, housing, conservancy services, and water supply. It will also require deciding on the political structure for the country. This is most important. Rejuvenation of agriculture and industry and ensuring internal peacekeeping. A durable peace will only be possible when the four permanent members have no further interest in sponsoring various anti-SR groups. In this respect, I believe that Russia can play a major role in calling out a minimum acceptable agreement aimed at promoting a durable ceasefire. A possible precedent can be the 1960 Treaty of Guarantee on Cyprus, with Cyprus, Greece, and United Kingdom, uh, Cyprus, Greece, United Kingdom, and Turkey as guarantors. The same formula could be considered for all P5 as guarantors for the peace and constitutional agreement in Syria. The sectarian dimension makes it more difficult to secure the interest of regional powers, Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and UAE, in a durable ceasefire. A solution may possibly rest with a new constitution acknowledging with guarantees from major powers the primacy of the Sunni majority. Similarly, despite the Assad regime having an agreement with the Kurdish groups in fighting the Turkish army, a constitutional guarantee for their autonomy will be essential to secure their cooperation. At the same time, the pervasive animosity between the majority Sunni and minorities need to be defused. This, the time has come for the organization of Islamic cooperation, though I see to take a hand, whether it is in a position to do it or not, is moot. The need to secure adequate resources for creating conditions for the return of refugees and displaced will require a UN-sponsored bargain between the length of Bashar Assad's tenure beyond 2024 and, imperative, and the imperative need to provide needed resources and modalities for reconstructing the country. I think I will stop here and take some questions which might perhaps enable me to ask, answer some, uh, uh, to go into some other points, because I believe I've spoken for more than 45 minutes and, uh, and we have only 15 minutes more. Thank you very much. Great, thank you so much for those sure. remarks. Um, if you have questions for Ambassador Abiyankar, please feel free to comment in uh, the Q&A section at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Um, so as we wait for those questions to come in, um, I have a quick question that I would like to ask you. Um, what are the effects of the Syrian conflict on neighboring countries? The effect of the Syrian conflict on neighboring countries is probably about three different reasons one can think of. First is the fact that the refugees from Syria, as I said, there are 5 million refugees. Majority are in Turkey, but uh, they are in Lebanon, and presently Lebanon is in a bad shape, but they are still there, about a million, and in Jordan. So the immediate effect of, on the neighboring countries is the refugees and what to do with them. Because in some cases, like in Jordan, they have actually put up camps where the refugees are there and they are allowed to go out and work and come back to the camp. They're not allowed to go into the town. In Lebanon, this has not been possible. It's never going to be possible. Uh, so basically the Syrian refugees are working and living in the country. In Turkey, both things happen. Some are in camps and some are So that is one. The second is that um, Syria has old relations with its neighbors. So as far as Iraq is concerned, there used to be, of course, a bad socialist party there, but it's no longer there. So things have changed. So the connection is through Iran, because Iran is a, uh, helps Syria, and Iran needs Syria 
for the Hezbollah in Lebanon for their provisioning and weapons. And uh, as far as uh, Iran is concerned today in Iraq, it has, it has, although they are Persian, it still has an important role in the government, which is a Shia government, because for the first time, thanks to the US invasion, one good thing that happened was it corrected the balance, because there also you had the reverse position, where there was a Sunni minority, which was ruling, and a Shia, minority, a Shia majority in the country. It has now corrected itself. So that is the effect. So what happens in Syria affects what happens in Iraq. Similarly, what happens in Libya, in Lebanon affects, again, it depends a lot on what happens in Syria. Uh, Turkey, of course, is in a different position where uh, you find that it has invaded Syria. It holds land there. And Erdogan, the president of Turkey, has made no uh, bones about the fact that he wants a role in deciding the future of Syria, which is hardly what somebody should be doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis another country. But this is his position. So you can see that the major uh, neighbors of Syria are affected and continue to be affected almost on a daily basis because of what's going on. Great, thank you. Um, so we'll give it a few seconds to see if any attendee questions come in. Um, and if not, we'll conclude with those remarks. Yeah. A few seconds here. All right, so I guess we will conclude there. Um, I would like to thank Ambassador Abiyankar for joining us this afternoon. Um, and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook, um, if you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to um, iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you everyone and have a great rest of your afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.